from Kirkco Media. Have you been trying to make sense of all the insanity coming out of our politicians lately? Me too. So today, we may just shed some light on what's really happening, rather than focus on all the noise. Happy days are here again, the skies above are clear again. Let us sing a song of cheer again. Happy days are here again. Okay, so it's better. The new administration is, well, governing for a change. But maybe we're not quite in happy days yet. The first time that song was played at a Democratic convention was for FDR in 1932. Politics were complicated then. But we survived, and in fact, we flourished. And that song has played over and over again in conventions ever since. Today, our politics feel angry, impossibly complicated. We're still partisan, and we're even more and more divided. That's why you're listening to Politics. Meet me in the middle. I'm Bill Curtis. What you gonna do about it? Perhaps you've heard the renowned Yale law professor Jack Balkin describe cycles in a democracy. When the republics become less representative and less devoted to common good, we'll explain that later. A time when decay is brought on by increasing economic inequality and loss of trust, which threatens our constitutional system. So he calls it constitutional rot. In his book about the subject, he actually offers a message of hope, saying American democracy has weathered these cycles before and will get through them again. And in his book, The Cycles of Constitutional Time, He explains our democracy as we move through the rise and fall of dominant political parties. Sound familiar? The waxing and waning of political polarization. Does that sound familiar? And then the alternating episodes of constitutional rot and constitutional renewal. Notice that ends on an up note. He explains why American politics seem especially fraught right now. It's because, well, we asked him to join us so he could explain. This isn't a rehash of the news you've been consuming over the last week. This is important. This is an explanation as to why we're living through what we're living through and what exactly comes next. So stick around. Meet our much smarter co-host back from last season. First, Jane Albrecht has been a member of the U.S. Supreme Court Bar and an international trade attorney who for a decade protected First Amendment rights for the film industry. Welcome, Jane. Nice to have you back. Good to see you. Good to be back. And of course, Ed Larson, our Pulitzer Prize-winning historian, best-selling author, and worldwide lecturer. How you doing, Ed? Thanks for zooming in. Hey, I'm also a member of the Supreme Court Bar. Sorry about that. Jack Balkin, he's the Knight Professor of Constitutional Law and the First Amendment at Yale Law School. He's the founder and director of Yale's Information Society Project, and he's authored numerous books and over 100 articles in areas like constitutional theory, internet law, freedom of speech, reproductive rights. You've likely read his stuff in the New York Times, the New England Journal of Medicine, The Atlantic. He's got degrees from Cambridge and a couple from Harvard, where he was also a visiting professor. In July of 2020, Jack Balkin was elected to the American Law Institute. We're honored that he could join us here. Hey, Jack, thanks for zooming in. Pleasure, a pleasure. So before we dive in, I want to ask you a personal question. Is that okay? Sure, personal questions, why not? Okay. What's the end goal? Are you looking for actions to be taken as a result of people reading your book? I want people to understand how we got here, why things look so bad today. And I want people to understand that if they can take the long view, there is hope. There is the possibility of renewal. But that renewal will require mobilization, commitment, devotion to the common good. But if people have that, then we can get through this. And do your students read the book? Yeah, some of them have. 
they're very interested in the future because they're going to have to live in it. Yep, yep, absolutely. So let's dive in. You've been quoted saying that America is nearing the end of the Republican Party's long political dominance. Yeah. Can you describe that? So let me tell you an interesting feature about our system, which makes it different than a parliamentary system, like say in Britain or in Canada. So we have a, a system that's designed to make it very hard to get all of the levers of power. That was part of the original design of our constitution. So we separate state and federal power. We have separation of powers. We have staggered election terms. The president uh, is four years, the House two, the Senate six, and that's staggered, life tenure for justices. So that means it's very hard to get your arms around the whole government. But when you do, when a party manages to do that, it tends to remain dominant for a very long period of time. That's because it's hard for the other party to basically climb up the hill and displace it. So American politics is organized in terms of regimes. and In each regime, there's a dominant party. When I grew up, I was born in 1956. The Democrats were the dominant party. It's what I call the New Deal civil rights regime, New Deal coalition. By around 1980 or so, the Republican Party became the dominant party. And it's a party in which the conservative movement has been the dominant force in American politics. Is it always a pendulum? It depends. No party stays dominant forever. Every party ascends. Its coalition becomes winning, wins most of the elections, but not all of them. But it basically sets a tone for politics. And then eventually it fades away. It dies out, just like all things die, really. Interesting. So the Republican Party is dominant for about 40 years, and now it's running on empty. What causes a political party to die? And can they really die these days? The Democratic Party doesn't die off after the New Deal coalition collapse. Rather, it just doesn't win that many elections anymore. It doesn't control Congress as often. It doesn't win the presidency as often. And it doesn't set the basic tone of politics. What I mean to say is that the Republican coalition is breaking apart and that the party's dominance is going away. We can spend some time talking about the future of the Republican Party. It's very interesting, and it's very different than what happened to the Democrats in the 80s, because lots of things are different. They certainly do seem to be sidetracked, Jack. Well, they're in the middle of a civil war. So when I first started doing this research, they were already started the civil war. It was during the time of the rise of the Tea Party. So there was a, a civil war between Tea Party folks and establishment folks. And then Trump came along, and for a moment, he papered over all the differences. And then once he left, the civil war started over again, although on different terms now. Now it's not Tea Party versus establishment. It's sort of Trumpist versus establishment. But they're in the middle of a bitter struggle among themselves. And that is also weakening their position. But their coalition had been decaying for many years before that. You've said that America is at the height of a long cycle of political polarization. Clearly, we're all feeling that. Is this what you mean about constitutional rot? Give us some examples about that. What do you mean by that? Well, no, polarization and rot are not the same thing. What happens with the Voting Rights Act in 65 and the discovery by the Republican Party that cultural issues are the way to break apart the New Deal coalition, what happens with those two things is that you start to get increasing polarization in American politics. And it gets worse in the 70s and it gets worse in the 80s and it really gets bad in the 90s and nobody can imagine it get any worse. And then it gets worse again in the 2000s and then nobody can imagine it get any worse than that. And it does. It gets worse in the 2010s. And now we're at levels of mutual bitterness and enmity we haven't seen since the Civil War. That's the story of polarization in America. Okay. So where does this constitutional challenge come in? Constitutional rot is a feature of republics. There's this famous line by Ben Franklin you've all heard of. A woman asks him, what kind of constitution have you given us? He says, a republic, madam, if you can keep it. Very famous line. But everybody focuses on a republic, but actually the key words are, if you can keep it. The framers understood that republics are very delicate. They require commitment to the common good. They require power what they used to call civic virtue. They require people to put their country over party. They require cooperation. 
they require not demanding everything that's yours, but working for the good of a democracy as a whole. And when that's happening, you have a well-functioning republic. But that doesn't stay that way forever. So, Ed, let me bring you in for a second. I've always felt like the Constitution was not supposed to be like a railroad track. It's supposed to be a guide, a general guide for how we operate as a civilized society. Do you think that we're accomplishing that? I agree with Jack and you that it is a rough, very short framework that's designed to spread power among different sources to maintain a balance because the people who drafted it believed deeply in the Enlightenment idea of you didn't want to consolidate power in any one source, be it an oligarchy or a monarchy. You wanted to spread it out. The Constitution is really a very, very rough framework. You have just an outline of how a government will work and how it'll spread power. But the result is when anybody gets a really strong head of steam up, like a president, and wants to break those boundaries, it's very hard to corral them. We saw that with FDR. We saw that with Lincoln. We saw that with Trump. Because it's so rough, the whole thing works on what Washington or Franklin would have called Republican virtue with a small r. It's really the virtue of the players. And the players include the people. It also includes the office holders. And it truly works on their goodwill and their virtue. Jack, the framers didn't really plan for the idea that one of the branches of government could simply ignore the Constitution. It didn't actually plan for a president, for example, that would go their own way. Oh, I think it did. How did that protect us in this last administration? We didn't really have the balance of power and didn't really have checks and balances. There are checks and balances, and they didn't work as they should because you had a Senate in particular who wasn't willing to exercise his power. But one reason that the democracy survived in this last election was the decentralization of power and the decentralization of our elections. We had people currently in power who were trying to keep power through dishonest and unconstitutional means, but it is very hard to control 50 states. And that's, in the end, why they failed. I want to connect what James said to what Ed said. Think about this idea. You have a party that's been dominant. It's losing power. It sees that demographics are against it. It sees that its political program is unpopular, but it wants to stay in power. Now, that desire to stay in power, even when majorities don't support you, is anti-Republican with a small r. It's related to Ed's point about how our Constitution was designed. Our Constitution is representative, but representatives are supposed to represent majorities. But there's enormous temptation. People like power. They want to keep power. And so what they do is they try to cut corners and engage in all sorts of schemes to stay in power. And when they do, they threaten the foundations of a republic that is a representative democracy. Now, ordinarily, if you believe in democracy and republicanism, if you have virtue of the sort Ed was talking about, then you basically allow rotation in office, you allow rotation in power. But when you get rot, that is corruption, the failure to believe in the possibilities of republics, the desire to have everything for yourself and not cooperate with anyone else, then you would resort to these schemes. And that's what we saw in the last several months. I agree with your analysis, Jack. I wouldn't term it constitutional rot. It's political rot and institutional rot, but I don't think there's anything really wrong with our constitution. I think it's still a great document and it's still very workable. I don't think the fix lies in amending the constitution at this point. I think the fix lies 
in getting at the rot in our institutions and our politics. I would love to have a show just on whether or not we should amend the Constitution. <laughs> Actually, we had one of those shows with Sandy not too long ago. We did. It was Sandy Levinson, my dear friend. Yeah. But I agree with you. Between me and Sandy, I tend to be more of the Pollyanna about our designs. The thing is, our Constitution, no matter how well it's designed, it's designed to keep the good times going, designed to keep politics running. It's designed to basically make democracy possible. But it requires commitment. It requires norms. It requires cooperation. When those things fade away, then it's like a car where you've taken out all the oil. Question is, how do you fix it? Well, uh, there are lots of different ways of fixing it. But one way to do it is through the cycle of regimes. That is to say, through a new dominant party, basically getting its arms around the government and basically reforming and renewing politics. That's happened many times before. I think that's going to happen again. Jack, we're going to take a really quick break. We'll be right back before you can fast forward with Yale Law Professor Jack Bolkin. A Moment of Your Time, a new podcast from Kurt Co. Media. Currently 21 years old, and today I felt like I'm magic read extended from her fingertips down to the you base of my spine. You have to take care spine. of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your Trust me, voice. every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my but dream. Her fingers were facing me. You can feel like your purpose and your worth is really being going to stop me from playing the piano. She buys walkie-talkies, wonders to whom she should give the second Cats device. Cats don't love humans. We never did. We never will. We just find the ones that are... The beauty of rock climbing is that you can only focus on what's right in front of you. And so our American life begins. We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at kirkco.com slash a moment of your time. Okay, we're back. And Jack, I'd like to ask you to drill down into the cycles of constitutional time. What do you mean by that? Constitutions are constantly changing. It's like, you know, the Greek philosopher Heraclitus, you can't step into the same river twice. The Constitution in practice, the norms, the practices, the, the rules, the institutions, these are constantly changing, even though the basic framework of the Constitution is fixed. It doesn't change. But all the things that make a Constitution work, those things are constantly changing. Political coalitions are constantly changing, too. So the way to study constitutional development is to ask how different features of our constitutional system are changing over time and how they interact with each other. So I call that process constitutional time. And that's what the book is about. Can you outline some of those different cycles? And with each one, let's dive into what's going on now, how it applies to your cycles. There are three cycles I talk about in the book. One is the rise and fall of dominant parties and the regimes that they lead. And the second is the increase and decrease of polarization, political polarization. And the third is episodes of constitutional rot and renewal, political renewal. Can we start with a second? Yeah, sure. Polarization. You're saying decrease of polarization. How does that happen? Polarization around the turn of the 20th century happened for a lot of reasons. One is because the party coalitions changed because of waves of immigrants who became American citizens and their children became American citizens and they scrambled the party coalitions. Also because of decrease in income inequality that came because politicians overplayed their hand during the Gilded Age. It also happened for reasons that I go into in more detail in the book. It has to do with the fact that party coalitions are always the victim of their own success. And what do you mean by victims? What are the ramifications of that? Well, let me give you an example of the Reagan coalition. Reagan coalition is the coalition that's basically dominant from the 1980s forward. This is a coalition that was based on the idea of ending the Cold War to America's favor, lowering taxes, shrinking the size of government, 
and convincing everyone that government was a problem, not the solution to whatever ails America. So that was its basic program. In its early years, it was remarkably successful. The Cold War ended on terms favorable to the United States. Taxes went way down from where they had been in the 60s and 70s. The coalition didn't really reduce the size of government, but it did slow it in significant ways. And it did instill an ideology that you don't look to government to solve the problems that America faces. The problem with that is that if you keep saying the same things over and over again, lower taxes, don't rely on government to solve problems, then you face a new series of crises, an opioid crisis, problems with education, problems of structural unemployment, a pandemic, the Great Recession, uh, the contractions that followed the pandemic. All of these problems occur and the same statement, oh, I don't care what the problem is, just lower taxes and deregulate and it will solve it. Eventually, that's just not an adequate solution. And eventually people figure out it's not an adequate solution. In the case of the Great Depression, how did we get away from partisanship in order to heal? You should understand that by the time you have the Great Depression, 1932, politics already become depolarized. This is what I, I mentioned before in our previous segment, that depolarization really begins around the turn of the 20th century. So by the time you get to the 30s, both the Republican and Democratic parties are incoherent ideologically. They have lots of different folks with different views in both parties. And so it was possible to do a different kind of politics, not the kind of politics you can do today. There's one factor that's present today that wasn't present at the end of the Gilded Age, and that is mass misinformation and disinformation, which leads to and has achieved mass indoctrination. You are exactly wrong, Jane. In fact, that's exactly what the press was during the Gilded Age. Have you ever heard the term yellow journalism? Yes, I'm aware of that. That is from the late Gilded Age. I realize that, but I don't think it had the same massive impact as we have today. Well, I'll tell you a story, and then you tell me if this could never happen again, but this is the way it was. So what happened during Lake Gilded Age was that the cost of producing newspapers went way down so that it became much cheaper to engage in mass communication, cheaper than it ever had been before. And that meant there were many, many players, and the players felt that, that what they really needed was eyeballs. They needed circulation. They needed to grab attention. So in order to grab attention, what they did is they hired lots of reporters. And they told them, we're not really very interested in whether what you say is true or not. What we care about is whether we can increase circulation. Now, of course, this kind of media ecology would never happen today, but that's the way it was in the 1890s. And so the result is the reporters would just bake up stuff. And the more engaging and the more outrageous. Doesn't sound like we've gone very far from that, does it? This is the point I'm trying to make. I'm being ironic. That in fact, if you look at the media ecology of the late Gilded Age, it has many of the same problems as our media ecology. Of course, it's not exactly the same. The other thing that's really important about the late Gilded Age, it's full of demagogues. Uh, racist demagogues too, I should just tell you. And nobody trusts the newspapers. And the newspapers, of course, they're not trustworthy. In fact, the forms of journalism that we associate today with the profession of journalism, those arise in the middle of the 20th century. And underlining Jack's point about how there's precedent for it, everything he describes became even worse in the 1930s with the rise of radio. You had conspiracy theories. Heck, half the people sounded as crazy as that congresswoman from Georgia. They were talking about the Protocols of Zion. They were attacking anti-Semitism. They were talking about the Rothschilds. At that time, Rothschilds were damned a lot more than starting wildfires in California. Did the Rothschilds have a space laser in those days, Ed? Oh, they were even worse. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> they were undermining everything. And it was partly because of the rise of radio. 
where Jack was talking about the rise of yellow journalism and of cheap newspapers. So what we're seeing is a parallel in these conspiracy theories rising to amazing extents. Jack, have we had a time before where we basically replaced all forms of governance with forms of partisan politics? It doesn't seem like we've got any governance going on. We've got to pay homage to the new administration and how hard they're working to put things into a positive spin, or at least a positive motion. But still, politically, our government is all wrapped up in the politics and spending very little time governing. It's the Gilded Age. I mean, I tell everyone we're in the second Gilded Age. The Gilded Age is a period in which the political parties are essentially stagnant in terms of what they're able to do. They're basically paralyzed and frozen. And part of the reason why they're paralyzed and frozen is that polarization is very high and they won't cooperate with each other. Income inequality is rising. There are these vast new fortunes, vast new millionaires uh, created these huge corporations that are basically undermining democracy. The politicians are basically in the pockets of the very wealthy. Again, none of this would ever happen again today, but that's the way it was in the Gilded Age. (laughs) It's a time of deep corruption and a deep despair about democracy. And because of deep high inequality and party polarization, there's just no way to get anything through Congress. Jack, you say that we're slowly moving toward a second progressive era. There's hope that we're actually going to become more productive and some of this nonsense is going to fall away? Yes. I mean, it's not certainty. I can't promise you certainty. But in the book, I say that, that in five or 10 years, we'll know whether we've really turned the corner. Right now, it's very much on a knife's edge. I mean, after all, we're only a month away from an insurrection attempting to prevent the Electoral College votes from being counted in Congress. It's very serious. We're basically rotting away. That's our situation. But there are signs that, in fact, things are going to change. And that has to do with the, the possible emergence of a new political regime organized around a different set of ideas and a different set of interests. A new political regime under a current party, or do you see a new party? The dominant party in the new regime is probably going to be the Democratic Party. We'll be back in a second. On medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurt Co. Media. Hi, we're back. So, Jack, being that we call this meet me in the middle, sometimes I have to take some some partisan views just to have the conversation. If you look at the Democrats and their actions right now with lots of issues, we've got to deal with COVID, we've got to deal with the economy, we've got to deal with a whole bunch of international relationships that need some healing. And here we are focusing on impeachment. Even there's a question about whether there should be an impeachment after the president leaves the office. Even while there's like a 99.999% chance that that will not get all the way through because of the lack of Republican votes. So how do you see that fitting in to a Democratic Party that is moving us forward in governing? I see it as a disturbing and unfortunate necessity. Biden would rather not have to deal with this mess. He wants to solve the COVID issue. He wants to deal with the economic contraction. He knows that the the success of his coalition, whether Democrats get elected in 2022 and 2024, doesn't depend on the impeachment. It depends on whether or not he solves the problems with the pandemic and the contraction. But here's the problem. There was an insurrection. The president of the United States led an insurrection against Congress. What do you do about that? You just, oh, nothing happened. No, you got to do something about it. But they're going to do something about it, and it's going to fail and actually feed right into the Republicans' mantra. Yeah, indeed it will. But the point is, if you don't do anything, 
then what you're basically telling people is that you can attack the foundations of democracy and there's no cost. Nobody will try to hold you accountable. So let's bring up an alternative because Jane was talking to me about this the other day. Uh, Jane, you were talking about the 14th Amendment. Yeah, Section 3. Yeah. Can you bring that into bear here? Yeah. The 14th Amendment provides that Congress can prevent them from holding federal office ever again. Well, doesn't that accomplish everything that the Democrats are hoping to accomplish with the impeachment? It all depends on whether or not you'd get the exact same belly aching. The idea that if the Democrats use censure or if they use 14-3, that suddenly the Republicans would all join in and say, oh, you're right, we need to reform our party. I think it's really important we do this. Absolutely not. But they're not going to do it either way. We're just going to give the Republicans a platform to pontificate, to call into question a philosophy of should you support one of America's greatest institutions, the election, and we're going to give that voice where otherwise we could just get on with things and use this 14th Amendment to accomplish our goals and not risk giving our ex-president a chance to say, see, I was exonerated, I won again. Yeah. I should say that I don't think that the pros and cons of impeachment have anything to do with the question of whether or not Republicans will pontificate. I think that if you don't do impeachment, they'll pontificate. If you do do impeachment, they'll pontificate. If you try 14-3, they will. If you don't try 14-3, they will. The Republican Party at this point is beyond attempting to behave in a bipartisan fashion. They're not interested in that. I wouldn't call that bipartisan. I would call it beyond behaving in a matter that supports the Constitution. They've gone way beyond the Constitution in many respects. And by the way, I'm saying this to my Republican friends. They understand that their party is in a terrible position right now. They're in the middle of a civil war. It is not, it just doesn't make sense for any of them at this point to blow their party up by basically joining with the Democrats on most things. They're going to have to work this out between them. And so there's really nothing Democrats can do that are going to get Republicans to behave at this point. They're in an internecine struggle. It's just like orthogonal to the question of impeachment. The point I was making with Bill the other night, it was a strategic choice. If the Democrats had gone forward under Article 14.3 rather than an impeachment trial where they knew they would lose and, quote, exonerate Trump, then I do think at that point you would have gotten more Republicans. You wouldn't have gotten a majority by all means to sign on with that. And it would have taken behind the scenes negotiations. I think afterwards, it's still possible the Democrats could do censor, but I think it's going to be harder to get any Republicans or as many Republicans to sign on to a 14th Amendment resolution. So it was strategic. The problem with the trial, Jack, is that a trial in American public's view is a trial, just as it would be in the court. Article 14, Section 3 resolution or bill would never exonerate them. It also only requires a majority, right? Majority, except I believe there's at least some argument. It still would be subject to the filibuster in the Senate. So you might need 60 votes as opposed to 51. I do have to say, you make a very strong case, Jane. And the only thing I want to add is, if you look at the actual use of 14.3 following the Civil War, you'll see that it actually didn't accomplish very much. And that very few people were really deterred by it and that Congress removed the disability for everyone within a generation or so. And so in effect, 14.3 turned out to be a failure. Well, actually, I disagree with you on that. It was originally enacted for the use after the Confederacy, and it was used for Confederate generals. But there's really been no circumstance since then, other than one case regarding World War I, where it's been required. I think it was made for something like this. So 
I don't think it was a failure in that sense. And I don't think the fact that it hasn't been used since then is reason not to use it now. Jack, we, we seem to have a hundred Republican representatives that give the impression that they believe the election was stolen. Where does that fit into your cycles? That's rot. That's what it means to be in a condition of deep and profound rot. In an ordinary working, well-functioning democracy, the losers from an election, no matter how close, would simply accept that they lost the election and then organize themselves to win the next election. What happened was that the Republican Party is devoted now to minoritarian government. That is, they want to stay in power even if they don't win elections. So they try to entrench themselves in situations so that they can't be dislodged, and they try to shrink the electorate. That's been the strategy for the last 20 or so years. The next stage is to say, any election we lose is a stolen election. It's not a serious assertion, in my view, of electoral fraud. All the evidence we have suggests that the election was conducted pretty well. It's a desire not to lose power. And you can't have an effective democracy if one of the two major parties simply refuses rotation of power. Perhaps, Jack, you can, you can shed some light and explain to me what the mob wanted when they were at the Capitol. They were angry. They were passionate. Was it just to win? Or if they were in control, what would they do about it? You're going to have to ask them. I have no idea what's in their minds. We're all talking about insurrection. We're talking about a challenge to our very principles of being America, our voting system. And look how powerful this has become in our news. And we really don't know why they did it. Why they did it is because the United States has been suffering from the attack on its system by a demagogue who has mastered the arts of manipulation and deception and providing people with false beliefs about the way the world works. This person has destroyed and undermined features of our American system. And the mob is the response that is produced by handing over the reins of power in our constitutional system to a demagogue. That's why it happened. I want to talk about the lunatic fringe for just a minute, Jack. If I listen to you and Ed, we've always had one, right? They've always been there. We've always had people that were radically on one side or the other of a question. Yeah. Don't confuse radicals with lunatics. Two different animals. Define them. Radicals are people who want to get to the root of things and change them. Lunatics comes from the term luna, moon, meaning crazy. The fact that you want to get to the root of things and change it does not mean you're crazy. Conversely, the fact that you're crazy doesn't mean you actually want to reform anything. You might just want to blow things up. We've always had both, right, in our history? Yes. But now, here we are where the lunatics and the radicals have a new form of platform. They don't stand on a box anymore. They stand on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, and they have these very loud megaphones, and they can influence many. How do we survive this new kind of social media and communication that gives them that kind of platform? Earlier, we talked about the state of media in the 1930s and the state of media at the end of the Gilded Age. Mm -hmm. There are movements for professionalization and reform of media that occur throughout the 20th century. Currently, we have a new form of media, social media, organizing public discourse, curating it, organizing it, making it possible. These media are based on business models, which give them bad incentives, give them incentives to basically undermine the quality of public discourse. What we need is not to simply order them to act in one way or another with respect to content moderation. We need to engage in regulation of the basic business models of these companies so that 
their economic incentives are better aligned with their appropriate social function. The social function of these new companies now is to organize and facilitate democratic discourse. And right now, because they are essentially surveillance companies, they're data collection, data monetization, surveillance companies, their business incentives are badly aligned with that function. If we want to cure the problems of social media, we have to look past the current debates over cancel culture, deplatforming, reform of Section 230, and all of these other related questions. And we have to focus instead on the business models of these companies, how they're organized, their size, how they make money, how they do business. And if we can give them better incentives, they'll still be able to make money. They'll be able to play their appropriate role in the digital public sphere. That's the key challenge. Jack Balkin, thanks so much for joining us today. How do people follow you? Uh, well, if they keep trying to follow me, I'll have them arrested. Yeah, exactly. I have a blog called Balkanization, which they can visit, which is me and a bunch of other folks. I'm on Twitter every now and then, but Balkanization, I think, is the place I'd send people. And can they buy the Cycles of Constitutional Time? Is that at Amazon? It is on Amazon. Well, thank you, Jane Albrecht and Ed Larson. Thanks so much for coming back again this season. One more thing, Jack, before you go. Are you familiar with the SAM party? Tell me about it. Save America Party. David Jolly, a Republican governor from Florida, is now the executive chairman of the new SAM party. SAM, S-A-M, as in Michael. He said, show me a political party willing to recognize that health care can be strengthened through both a strong public option and a true and robust private option, that public education deserves greater investment, but students and parents also deserve choice, that immigration policy can include border security, but also a pathway to dignity and citizenship for those who desire it, and that the rights of responsible gun owners and our obligation to public safety can both be secured through greater regulation. Show me that political party and I'll show you a governing majority for the coming decade. Sounds upbeat, doesn't it? Sounds familiar? Could it sound anything like politics? Meet me in the middle. Yes, actually what you're describing is the centrist wing of the Democratic Party. So maybe Jolly should switch parties. Either that or perhaps they should. We'll talk about all of it. Our executive producer for this episode of Meet Me in the Middle is Stuart Halpern. Show engineering and editing was by Joey Salvia. And music for Meet Me in the Middle is composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. Mixing and sweetening by Steve Rickyberg. Don't waste your time hunting around for our next episode. Hit that subscribe button, will you? We'll see you next week, folks. It will be From Kirkco Media, media for your mind.